Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. So did everybody hear that? Take your books with you. Um, so we don't have to try to relocate them and stack them somewhere for the, there's going to be a lot of people here. Uh, so, you know, <clears throat> okay. Is that good? All right. Anything else? David, all set? Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family this evening. Thank you for truth that continues to set us free, Father. Thank you for the challenging lessons and thank you for sending us your helper, the Spirit, to articulate these things to our souls, to the innermost recesses of our souls so that we can be delivered. That's what Galatians 5.1 is all about. It's for freedom that we've been set free by your Son. And it's for that very act on a cross 2,000 years ago, Father, that we are most grateful and thankful for. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. In the Gospel, Salvation and Sanctification, Part 53, I thought... Um, I was going to have to rename this evening's message, but that's not the case. Um, tonight's a night of reflection, a different kind of service, let's say, a different message, so to speak, a different approach. Every so often the Spirit says, let's get real. Let's make this real. We do an awful lot of academic study here. And it's rigorous, but we all have lives outside of these four walls, don't we? And there's a reality, there's a thing called life that we have to find the connectivity to, the connection to, the application to. So every so often the Spirit says, let's get really real. Let's just talk about something that we've all dealt with. So this evening... Well, this, actually, this morning, I happened to stumble across a, a short speech a man gave <clears throat> about a subject that all of us can relate to firsthand. That subject is addiction. But for many of us, you know, we like to say, oh, you must be referring to so-and-so or my friend over there. We like to point fingers but I'm here to tell you, all of you, you're all addicted to something, and in the worst way. Oh, society likes to point fingers, but truly, as they say, when you point your finger at someone else, there are three fingers pointing back at you. As we've noted over the past few weeks, most Americans are addicted to prosperity in some way, shape, or form. So much so that it has been institutionalized, socialized, and made acceptable even to be a wealth addict. And nobody's pointing fingers, except God the Holy Spirit, of course. So, as you listen to this man speak from the heart about addiction, I want you to focus on the big picture reason why P 
people are prone to addiction. Why? He says in conclusion, as you'll see, quote, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. Think about that and how many people lack a connection, a real connection with Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So sit back, and I'll play the video here. One of my earliest memories is of trying to wake up one of my relatives and not being able to. And I was just a little kid, so I didn't really understand why. But as I got older, I realized we had drug addiction in my family, including later cocaine addiction. I've been thinking about it a lot lately, partly because it's now exactly 100 years since drugs were first banned in the United States and Britain, and we then imposed that on the rest of the world. It's a century since we made this really fateful decision to take addicts and punish them and make them suffer because we believe that would deter them, it would give them an incentive to stop. And a few years ago, I was looking at some of the addicts in my life who I love and trying to figure out if there was some way to help them. And I realized there were loads of incredibly basic questions I just didn't know the answer to. Like, what really causes addiction? Uh, Why do we carry on with this approach that doesn't seem to be working? Is there a better way out there that we could try instead? So I read loads of stuff about it, and I couldn't really find the answers I was looking for. So I thought, okay, I'll go and sit with different people around the world who've lived this and studied this and talk to them and see if I can learn from them. And I ended up, I didn't realize I would end up going over 30,000 miles at the start, but I ended up going and meeting loads of different people from a transgender crack dealer in Brownsville, Brooklyn, to a scientist who spends a lot of time feeding hallucinogens to mongooses to see if they like them. Um, (laughs) It turns out they do, but only in very specific circumstances. To to the only country that's ever decriminalized all drugs, from cannabis to crack, Portugal. And the thing I realized that really blew my mind is, almost everything we think we know about addiction is wrong. And if we start to absorb the new evidence about addiction, I think we're going to have to change a lot more than our drug policies. But let's start with what we think we know, what I thought I know, right? Let's think about this middle row here, right? Imagine all of you, for 20 days now, went off and used heroin three times a day. Some of you look a little bit more enthusiastic than others at this prospect. Um, Don't worry, it's just a thought experiment. Imagine you did that, right? What What would happen? Now, we have a story about what would happen that we've been told for a century. We think because there are chemical hooks in heroin, as you took it for a while, your body would become dependent on those hooks, you'd start to physically need them, and at the end of those 20 days, you'd all be heroin addicts, right? That's what I thought. First thing that alerted me to the fact something not right with this story is when it was explained to me, if I step out of this TED Talk today and I get hit by a car and I break my hip, I'll be taken to hospital and I'll be given loads of diamorphine. Diamorphine is heroin. It's actually much better heroin than you're ever going to buy on the streets because the stuff you buy from a drug dealer is contaminated, actually very little of it is heroin, whereas the stuff you get from the doctor is medically pure. And you'll be given it for quite a long period of time. There are loads of people in this room may not realize that you've taken quite a lot of heroin, right? Uh, and, for, and anyone watching this anywhere in the world, this is happening. And if what we believe about addiction is right, those people are exposed to all those chemical hooks. What should happen? They should become addicts. 
This has been studied really carefully. It doesn't happen. You will have noticed if your grandmother had a hip replacement, she didn't come out as a junkie. <laughs> and when I learned this, it just seemed so weird to me. So contrary to everything I'd been told, everything I thought I knew, I just thought it couldn't be right. Until I went and met a man called Bruce Alexander, who's a professor of psychology in Vancouver, who carried out an incredible experiment that I think really helps us to understand this issue. Professor Alexander explained to me the idea of addiction we've all got in our heads. That story. Comes partly from a series of experiments that were done earlier in the 20th century. They're really simple experiments. You can do them tonight when you go home if you feel a little bit sadistic. You get a rat and you put it in a cage and you give it two water bottles. One is just water, and the other is water laced with either heroin or cocaine. If you do that, the rat will almost always prefer the drugged water and almost always kill itself quite quickly. So there you go, right? That's how we think it works. In the 70s, Professor Alexander comes along and he looks at this experiment and he notices something. He said, "Ah, we're putting the rat in an empty cage. It's got nothing to do except use these drugs. Let's try something a bit different." So Professor Alexander built a cage that he called Rat Park, which is basically heaven for rats. Right? They've got loads of cheese. They've got loads of coloured balls. They've got loads of tunnels. Crucially, they've got loads of friends. They can have loads of sex, and they've got both the water bottles, the normal water and the drugged water. But here's the fascinating thing: in Rat Park, they don't like the drug water. They almost never use it. None of them ever use it compulsively. None of them ever overdose. You go from almost 100% overdose when they're isolated to 0% overdose when they have happy and connected lives. Now, when we first saw this, Professor Alexander thought, you know, maybe this is just a thing about rats. They're quite different to us. You know, not maybe not as different as we'd like, but you know.、Um, But fortunately, there was a human experiment into the exact same principle happening at the exact same time. It was called the Vietnam War. In Vietnam, 20% of all American troops were using loads of heroin. And、uh, if you look at the news reports from the time, they were really worried because they thought, "My God, we're going to have hundreds of thousands of junkies on the streets of the United States when the war ends." It made total sense. Now, those soldiers who were using loads of heroin were followed home. The archives of general psychiatry did a really detailed study, and what happened to them? It turns out they didn't go to rehab, they didn't go into withdrawal. Ninety-five percent of them just stopped. Now, if you believe the story about chemical hooks, that makes absolutely no sense. But Professor Alexander began to think there might be a different story about addiction. He said, "What if addiction isn't about your chemical hooks? What if addiction is about your cage? What if addiction is an Adaptation to your environment. Looking at this, there was another professor called Peter Cohen in the Netherlands who said maybe we shouldn't even call it addiction. Maybe we should call it bonding. Human beings have a natural and innate need to bond, and when we're happy and healthy, we'll bond and connect with each other. But if you can't do that because you're traumatized or isolated or beaten down by life. You will bond with something that will give you some sense of relief. Now, that might be gambling, that might be pornography, that might be cocaine, that might be cannabis. But you will bond and connect with something because that's our nature. That's what we want as human beings. And I think, you know, at first I found this quite a difficult thing to get my head round. But one way that helped me to think about it is, and I can see, yeah, you know, I've got over by my seat there a bottle of water, right? I'm looking at lots of you, and lots of you have bottles of water with you, right? Forget drugs, forget the drug war. Totally legally, all of those bottles of water could be bottles of vodka, right? We could all be getting drunk. I might after this,、um, and, but we're not, right? Now, because you've been able to afford the approximately a gazillion pounds that it costs to get into a TED talk, I'm guessing you guys could afford to be drinking vodka for the next six months. You wouldn't end up homeless. 
You're not going to do that. And the reason you're not going to do that is not because anyone's stopping you. It's because you've got bonds and connections that you want to be present for. You've got work you love. You've got people you love. You've got healthy relationships. And a core part of addiction, I came to think, and I believe the evidence suggests, is about not being able to bear to be present in your life. Now, this has really significant implications. The most obvious implications are for the war on drugs, right? In Arizona, I went out with a group of women who were made to wear T-shirts saying I was a drug addict and go out on chain gangs and dig graves while members of the public could jeer at them. And when those women get out of prison, they're going to have criminal records that mean they'll never work in the legal economy again. Now, that's a very extreme example, obviously, in the case of the chain gang, but actually almost everywhere in the world we treat addicts to some degree like that. We punish them, we shame them, we give them criminal records, we put barriers between them reconnecting. There was a doctor in Canada, uh, Dr. Gabor Mate, an amazing man, who said to me, if you wanted to design a system that would make addiction worse, you would design that system. Now, there's a place that decided to do the exact opposite, and I went there to see how it worked. In the year 2000, Portugal had one of the worst drug problems in Europe. One percent of the population was addicted to heroin, which is kind of mind-blowing. And every year, they tried the American way more and more. They punished people and stigmatized them and shamed them more. And every year, the problem got worse. And one day, the prime minister and the leader of the opposition got together and basically said, look, we can't go on with a country where we're having ever more people becoming heroin addicts. Let's set up a panel of scientists and doctors to figure out what would genuinely solve the problem. And they set up a panel led by an amazing man called Dr. Huao Gulao to look at all this new evidence. And they came back and they said, decriminalize all drugs from cannabis to crack. But, and this is the crucial next step, take all the money we used to spend on cutting addicts off, on disconnecting them, and spend it instead on reconnecting them with the society. And that's not, essentially, that's not really what we think of. What they did wasn't really what we think of as drug treatment in the United States and Britain. So they do do residential rehab, they do do psychological therapy that does have some value. But the biggest thing they did was the complete opposite of what we do. A massive program of job creation for addicts and microloans for addicts to set up small businesses. So say you used to be a mechanic, When you're ready, they go to a garage and they'll say, if you employ this guy for a year, we'll pay half his wages. The goal was to make sure that every addict in Portugal had something to get out of bed for in the morning. And when I went and met the addicts in Portugal, it's fascinating. What they said is, as they rediscovered purpose, they rediscovered bonds and relationships with the wider society. It'll be uh, 15 years this year since that experiment began, and the results are in. Injecting drug use is down in Portugal, according to the British Journal of Criminology, by 50%, 5-0%. Overdose is massively down. HIV is massively down among addicts. Uh, addiction in every study is significantly down. One of the ways you know it's worked so well is that almost nobody in Portugal wants to go back to the old system. Now, that's the kind of political implications. I actually think there's a layer of implications to all this research below that. You know, we live in a culture where people feel really increasingly vulnerable to all sorts of addictions, whether it's to their smartphones or to shopping or to eating. You know, before these talks began, you guys know this, that uh, we were told we weren't allowed to have our smartphones on. And I have to say, a lot of you looked an awful lot like addicts who were being told their dealer was going to be unavailable for the next couple of hours. And, you know, a lot of us feel like that. And it might sound weird to say, oh, you know, I've been talking about how disconnection is a major driver of addiction. But weird to say it's growing because you think, well, we're the most connected society there's ever been, surely. But I increasingly began to think that the connection we have, the connections we have, we think we have, are like a kind of parody of human connection. If you have a crisis in your life, you'll notice something. It won't be your Twitter followers who come to sit with you. 
It won't be your Facebook friends who help you turn it round. It'll be your flesh and blood friends who you have deep and nuanced and textured face-to-face relationships with. And I think there's a, there's a study I learned about from Bill McKibben, the environmental writer. I think tells us a lot about this. He looked at the number of close friends the average American believes they can call on in a crisis. That number has been declining steadily since the 1950s. The amount of floor space an individual has in their home has been steadily increasing. And I think that's like a metaphor for the choice we've made as a culture, right? We've traded floor space for friends. We've traded stuff for connections. And the result is that we are one of the loneliest societies there has ever been. And yet Bruce Alexander, the guy who did the Rat Park experiment, says, we talk all the time in addiction about individual recovery. And it's right to talk about that. But we need to talk much more about social recovery. Something's gone wrong with us, not just as individuals, but as a group. And we created a society where, for a lot of us, life looks a whole lot more like that isolated cage and a whole lot less like Rat Park. But if I'm honest, this isn't why I went into it, right? I didn't go in to discover the political stuff, the social stuff. I wanted to know how to help the people I love. And when I came back from this long journey and I'd learned all this, I looked at the addicts in my life, and if, you know, if you're really candid, it's, it's hard loving an addict, and there's going to be lots of people who know in this room you're angry a lot of the time. And um, I think one of the reasons why this debate is so charged is because it runs through the heart of each of us, right? Everyone has a bit of them that looks at an addict and thinks, I wish someone would just stop you. And the kind of script we're told for how to deal with the addicts in our lives is typified by, I think, by the reality show Intervention. If you guys haven't seen it, I think everything in our lives is typified by reality TV, but that's another, that's another TED Talk. Um, uh, if you've never seen the show Intervention, it's a pretty simple premise. You get an addict, all the people in their life, gather them together and say, if you don't shape up, they confront them with what they're doing, and they say, if you don't shape up, we're going to cut you off, right? So what they do is they take the connection to the addict and they threaten it. They make it contingent on the addict behaving the way they want. Um, and I began to think, I began to see why that approach doesn't work. And I began to think that almost that's like the importing of the logic of the drug war into our private lives. So I was thinking, well, how can I be Portuguese, right? And what I try to do now, and I can't tell you I do it consistently and I can't tell you it's easy, is to say to the addicts in my life that I want to deepen the connection with them, to say to them, I love you whether you're using or you're not, I love you whatever state you're in, and if you need me, I'll come and sit with you, because I love you and I don't want you to be alone or to feel alone. And I think the core of that message, you're not alone, we love you, has to be at every level of how we respond to addicts, socially, politically and individually. For a hundred years now, we've been singing war songs about addicts. I think all along we should have been singing love songs to them because the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. Thank you. Again, that was a gentleman by the name of Jonathan Hari. Everything you think you know about addiction is wrong. And as I mentioned uh, before I showed it, I had no idea that uh, I'd be showing you that video. But the reason 
I did is not because I'm a steady fan of TED Talks, as they are often anti-biblical, but I thought this one made a lot of sense, and there was a lot of connective tissue to our lessons. Quote, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. So it got me thinking about how God pulls all of us from the depths of our addictions. And if you still don't think you have any addictions, let me just give you a few examples. And I say this without reservation. I say this not as an option. Not You notice the question itself is, are you an addict? It's, which addict are you? Because we all have our addictions. There's the, and I just gave these funny names. There's the techno junkie. All your spare time on technology. The day planner. All your time making and executing plans. Mommy dearest. All your time focused on your kids. Trophy spouse. All your time trying to please your spouse. American Idol. All your time building your personal brand. How about the sex addict? All your time spent thinking about sex. The swindler. All your time spent manipulating others. The conspirator. All your time on conspiracy theories. The overachiever. All your time climbing everything. (laughs) And the emperor. All your time chasing worldly prosperity. Do we need to continue? Why is the Spirit motivating such a thing? Because we all, folks, we all have addictions. And we all can relate to the reason, at least, why we develop an addiction. It's because something else is missing. Something else is missing. So we fill a void. What the TED Talk folks will likely never state is that what you and I know full well is truth. That there is something missing and that people are designed to connect with God through Jesus. So what's missing? Humans were born born to connect with their Creator. Everything else is a subsequent development. Without that baseline connection, man searches to exhaustion, changing addictions like seasons. Some of you are saying, hey, I was all, I'm, I've been all ten of those addicts <laughs> at some point in my life. <laughs> Why? Because when there's something missing, we fill it with a void. And then eventually we figure out when we hit rock bottom, that didn't work. So we find, guess what? Another addiction. Some other thing that we can obsess about. When all along it's just a relationship, a healthy, real one, a full one, with our Lord and Savior. We're meant to connect with Him at a very personal level. What do you think He's been teaching us for the last 
oh, I don't know, three, four months even. What's the gospel been all about? Throw out the forensic details, the judicial aspects of salvation. Of course they're there. Find the person in Jesus and connect with him. That's how you're saved. You're not saved by believing the back of a coin. You believe in your Lord and Savior. And he is a real person. And when he's missing, you will have certain pronounced addictions. Because something's missing. And you were designed to graft with him. I guess that's what resonated so much in my soul when I heard this man speak about addiction the way he did. I just wish I could have followed him up on that stage in London with the likes of tonight's message, but how well is a pastor, a godly one, going to be received by the world? What I found interesting, though, was the remedy he proposed. Whether he knew it or not, he stated that the remedy really was to act in grace and love towards others with addictions. That that was the healing power of reconnecting. You're never going to reconnect if you alienate from a position of strength. Remember, just like it is with God, grace initiates by crossing the chasm. God's omnipotent. And thank God He crossed the chasm by grace to save and sanctify us. Amen? Well, He's our prototype then. So we ought not spend our time trying to scorn all the addicts, especially since if we look in the mirror with any honesty, we're addicts. Some of us are addicted to judging. How about that? Some of us are religious addicts. How about that? We spend all our time looking for different ways to elevate our own selves. That in of itself is an addiction to the flesh. Go to Matthew 25, 31. So do not think that anyone in here is any more or less guilty of this thing. We're all guilty of addictions. But what the Spirit's really trying to say is why? What's missing? I mean, why are some of us addicted? We spent two weeks on prosperity. Why such a big speed bump? I mean, why have we spent many more weeks than that on idolatry and specifically even sexual idolatry? Why is that? Because we have problems. <laughs> Matthew twenty-five thirty-one. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. 
naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. How many metaphors are in there? I was sick. Think of the addict. I was sick. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Huh. People who struggle with addiction are in a position of weakness. Well, what does Scripture say, though? Should we exacerbate their sense of loneliness by scorning them and pushing them off to the side? Or should we find ways to reconnect with them? What do you think this passage is referring to? Go to Galatians 6.1. Galatians 6.1. Should we pursue ways of reconnecting to whatever extent possible? Galatians 6.1. Galatians 6.1. What's the remedy? What's missing? Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ, which is love. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So the point the Spirit's making is simple, and he's been alluding to it in various shades for years now from this pulpit. We are humans, and humans were created to relate to one another at a personal level. And if we don't, if we lose that connection with others, we seek to self-medicate with the risk of becoming addicts. Now, just to keep things balanced, grace and love have two sides, both an encouraging, in other words, do what's right, do cross the chasm, encourage someone to do what's right, but there's also grace and love, no less so, there's also a discouraging aspect of those things, which is to say, don't do what's wrong. We might call that tough love, depending on the you know, magnitude of it, the intensity of it. Grace and love have two sides, both an encouraging do what's right side and a discouraging don't do what's wrong side. So addicts shall not be enabled either. We can't become enablers, in other words. That's not love, that's a perversion as well. So we have to have balanced grace and love. But nonetheless, the idea is to reconnect with these people, not push them aside. 
not point fingers. We're all addicts. You see, the sanctification that we've been studying has everything to do with our recognizing our own religions, our own addictions to them. Religion's like a drug, right? It's a drug because the more we pump into it, the more elevated the flesh is. That's what religion is. It's all about creature credit. It's, about, it's all about stratification. It's all about separating selves from others when Jesus Christ himself didn't even do that. It was only the religious people that had a problem with him sitting with the prostitutes and the tax collectors. Do you remember? But yet so many religious people nowadays scorn these people, have no intention whatsoever because they don't have one iota of Christ's love of trying to reconnect with these people. They'd rather write them off. And they'll institute laws even in society to do just that. And by the way, who got it right? My people. Portuguese, Paul. Huh? I don't expect the rest of you to understand. We're a wonderful race of people. Loving, kind, hardworking, handsome, pretty. (laughs) That's funny. I had to get that in there. You know I had to. So the sanctification that we've been studying has everything to do with our recognizing our own religions, our own addictions to them. Religion is man's invention in the absence of a relationship with Christ. Religion is man's invention in the absence of a relationship with Christ. Why else would you need religion? Why else would you need that drug to lift you up? Why else would you need to go to a church just to feel good about yourself? Unless something was missing. Because if you have a real relationship with Jesus Christ, that stuff is about many other things. It's not about puffing yourself up. That's why religious people make awful ambassadors for Christ. They're famous for alienating people. Pointing out everyone else's faults. And tell him, oh, you're this and you're that, and, you know, look at me, I'm pious, I'm religious, I'm blah, blah, blah. And they specialize in alienating people from Christ because they call themselves Christians. Think of what an unbeliever even says. Well, you're a Christian, I don't want to be any part of that. You're a jerk. You're not love, you're not grace. You're a jerk. Where's the love in that? So religious people make awful ambassadors for Christ. Christ taught as much about this issue as just about anything else in his ministry. Why? Because religion is but a stone's throw from addiction even. Why might that be? Why might that have been? Why did he spend so much time denouncing and railing against the religious crowd because religion is but a stone's throw even from addiction in all fairness to truth the two concepts are codependent go to Luke 18.9 Luke 18.9 speaking of religion and speaking of 
perspective and people that are addicted to themselves, addicted to wealth, addicted to all these little things that unfortunately in many ways society deems as okay. It's funny how society does that. Luke 18.9 And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Gee. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. But the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. To be sanctified means to understand the Word of God, the mind of Christ, His very heart. Hence our need to submit to the Word of God the way we are this evening. Romans 10.17, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. We've learned this in spades over the past couple years, that you don't get to manufacture faith. Faith is a grace gift. But the Word says the only way you receive it is by studying the Word of God, is by taking in the Word of God, figuring out who Jesus Christ even is in the first place, putting on the divine goggles so you can actually see the world the way it is, the good, the bad, the ugly, see it all as truth. It's from that posture, from that position, that you're able to move forward righteously. Otherwise, something's going to be missing, and you too will end up in some religious bondage, let's call it, possibly with any number of addictions, because your life is going unfulfilled. If you want to understand and become an understanding human being, the way Christ was, then you must learn to jettison your religions. Up here on the board, to borrow from a Tuesday principle. First things first, if you try to understand Christ's heart through a worldly lens, you will remain confused your whole life. The Word is meant to provide you with divine vision. After your eye is clear, Luke 11.34, divine perspective is possible. Scripture says this, Luke 11.34, The eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is clear, your whole body also is full of light. But when it is bad, your body also is full of darkness. So vision has a lot to do with what even enters the soul. Now, just to bring into view our last couple of weeks' lessons, since we've done a lot of work on prosperity, which is an addiction in of itself, I think most would agree, Reflect. I was thinking about this. Think about our own society. Think of the person who snarls as they step over the homeless person and says, get a job, you bum. Think of that person. Think of that moment. And there dangles a cross around their neck or something. Or a tattoo on their arm. Or whatever else little religious thing. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with those things, but 
You know what I'm saying? That's the same person who scorns the addict, isn't it? Concentrate for a second. <clears throat> Choose your poison. The more socially acceptable addictions, wealth, idolatry. In other words, stop right there. Who's the bigger addict? Say the bum, you know, had a bottle of something, wine or something next to him. Who's the bigger addict? That guy or the person who stepped over and judged him? Think about that. Who's got the bigger problem? Who's a bigger addict? And don't think about what society will tell you. Think about what Jesus would say. Judging is the worst. Self-elevation puts you on the same stratosphere as Satan himself. Choose your poison. The more socially acceptable addictions, such as wealth, idolatry, etc., are in many ways worse addictions than many others. Institutionalized addictions are given power to judge and scorn the, quote, uglier ones. In some ways, the prior is more difficult to overcome than the latter. To be sanctified, both of these parties must fess up to the truth about themselves. They both have addictions, let's say. Something is missing. That's the whole point of this evening's message. Something is missing. There's a connection that's not there. Consider today's rising star. Sex addiction. What's missing? Intimacy. What is missing in that person's life? Intimacy. Something is missing. I like the point the man in the video made about the square footage of our houses getting larger and our circle of friends getting smaller. Think about it. If you spend all your money on a big house, all you can do afterwards is remain inside of it since you can't afford to do anything else. <laughs> There's truth to that. Some people say, I'm married to my house. Well, that's a terrible thing. The world promotes this because Satan wants to see a bunch of disconnected, inhumane, beast-like, self-absorbed islands. Satan loves that. Because when you're an island, that becomes who you are. You become disconnected from all your relationships. Even the one that you're supposed to have with Christ. Hebrews 10.25, do not forsake gathering together so that we might be encouraged by one another. As long as it's called today, encourage one another. If we're disconnected, how does that happen? See, Satan wants to see a bunch of disconnected islands. Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that connection implies sanctification even. Disconnected people are not sanctified. Christ himself was very social. It doesn't imply extroversion. It means that he had good relationships with others. Think about he loved Lazarus and his family. He had real relationships with his disciples even. He was well connected. And then he had, obviously he was the God man, so he had a much, much higher connection in general. But he's a good example. He's the perfect example. Christ himself was social. It doesn't imply extroversion. 
even though his circle of friends was relatively small, given the size of his ministry, John 17.9, go there. John 17.19, excuse me. So connection implies sanctification. Disconnected people are not sanctified. These things go hand in hand. A person who's an island is not being sanctified. They're not even fulfilling their role. We're supposed to encourage one another for as long as it is today. If you're too busy on your iPhone, how are you connecting with anyone? How are you actually helping the weaker individual in that moment? You're just being a self-absorbed jerk. Oh, but when the phone goes off, now everybody can flood me. Where is everybody? And we complain, where is everybody? You alienated them all. That's where they went. We're so self-absorbed. We expect everybody to turn on a dime when we shut our addictions off. So there's always two sides. John 17, 19. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus, in other words, is our prototype for sanctification. And nobody related to others across the board, better than Jesus did. So regardless of your addiction, your chosen poison, I humbly suggest that the next time you're feeling the itch, let's say, you know addictions have the itch, the next time you're feeling the itch, do something very simple. Connect with the Word, Jesus Christ. Connect with Him. Connect with Jesus. Pray with Him. Open your Bible and drink Him. Consume Him. John 6, 53-58. Watch as the Word washes over you and delivers you from your recurring lusts. You see, it's like the guy said. The opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's connection. You have to reconnect with Jesus. If you ever want to be delivered from any addiction, and it doesn't matter if it's drugs or sex or, or, or uh, wealth or you know, society or whatever the you know, work, whatever your problem is. If you want deliverance from that addiction, you have to reconnect with Christ because Christ will wash you. He is the Logos, after all, capital L. He is the Word, John 1.14. And the Word became flesh. If you want to be washed of your own addictions, you're doing it right now. You're taking in the Word of God. This is the thing that washes you clean. Go to John 6.53. John 6.53. He's really, in all fairness, He's really made it very simple, hasn't He, for us? He really has. He says, I already knew an eternity past. Listen, don't get hung up on the, you know, trying to do good like the religious person, trying to, you know, artificially stop your little addictions and pretend they're not there. I died for those sins too. I want to transform you. The only way that's ever going to happen is if you and I become best friends. It's the only way it's going to happen. Because if we're not best friends and you were designed to be my friend, there's going to be something missing. And when there's something missing, you're going to fill it with something else. And that something else has every potential to become an addiction. 
John 6.53, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. I was listening to a song. I told you tonight's lesson was very different. I was listening to a song written and sang by Joe Walsh of the band The Eagles called One Day at a Time. And in the concert footage that I was watching, he said, quote, I've only been drunk once in my life, and it lasted 20 years. It's an honest thing to say. It's not often the Spirit has me do such a thing, plucking from the world to close a message, but we're going to close with this video. And before we do, I'm begging you to think about everything we've been learning about as of late, beginning with the gospel truth, what it means to live the gospel reality, what it means to see things the way our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ saw them, what it means to be merciful the way God is merciful to us, what it means to love God wholly because, because He first loved us. What does that mean? What it means to consider from faith to faith and that a righteous man shall live by faith and what it means to accept salvation and sanctification as unity. With that said, with all of those biblical principles and doctrines at the forefront of our minds, let us not forget that God became a man so that He might connect with His children. God became a man so that He might connect with His children. He didn't come to oppress us. He came to love and serve us as the God-man. How much has He done for you? Think about that. How much has He done for you? So then, how much ought we do for each other, even ourselves, by way of grace? So let's just listen to the song now, and please excuse any apparent idolatry. You're going to see it. It's impossible to pluck anything off of anywhere nowadays without something being obviously idolatry. So look past that. So excuse any apparent idolatry and just listen to the spirit of the words, knowing that regardless of any other issue in this man's life, he's learned to live one day at a time. Maybe that's you. Maybe you have to learn to reconnect with Jesus one day at a time.
If you can't understand him at the start of the video, he says, quote, this is about learning to live my life without my, quote, best friend, Vodka, who I said goodbye to 18 years ago. That's how he kicks off his song. Think about his language, best friend. Is there anyone more intimate to us than our best friends? Anyone we're more, quote, connected with than our best friends? There's really only one friend that we really need to connect with, and that's Jesus Christ. Amen? All right, I'm just going to close with a video, and then we'll close in prayer after that. This is about learning how to uh, live my life without my best friend, Vodka. <laughs> Who I said goodbye to 18 years ago.
Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of studying your word here this evening. We ask for your blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.